0: We are back in the Gospel of John. Uh, Our text for today is just going to be John chapter 13, verse one, just one verse. We will pick up the pace as we go on. Uh, We'll probably be in the Gospel of John for uh, the majority of next year, Uh, but we will go more than one verse at a time. But today uh, we're just going to take this first verse of uh, John chapter 13, verse 1. So let me read out uh, John chapter 13, verse 1. This is God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. This is God's word. We had some friends uh, who moved to the United States a while ago, specifically to um, try and foster and adopt children. It was quite hard to do in Australia uh, and it's much more accessible in the USA. And so they moved over to uh, Philadelphia and they fostered Uh, several children, and they were in this pattern for about uh, seven or eight years of taking a child that was um, only perhaps uh, anywhere from two months old to about eight or nine months old, and they would take these babies in, they would care for them, uh, they would make them their own, and then usually for about seven or eight children in a row, after about six to 12 months, Um, the agency would say, we're we're now going to try and reunite this child with their birth parents. And so that child that they've cared for, that they've basically brought up, was then taken from them and uh, rehomed, in a sense, back to their birth parents. And this family did this for several years. And one of their friends, I remember them relaying a conversation. One of their friends asked them, "Um, how do you keep doing it? How do you keep getting your heart broken again and again? Because they would love these children. They would take them in from basically birth and care for them. And then all of a sudden the government would say, right, we're taking them from you. Thanks for your job. Um, we're now going to give them to someone else. And uh, this mom, I'll never forget what she said. She said, uh, these children need someone who is going to love them enough to get their heart broken again and again. And I thought that's so profound. Uh, These children actually need someone who's going to love so much that they'll get their heart broken, but their love compels them to care for these children. That's a a special kind of love. I mean, that's at the core of love, which is this selfless and sacrificial act. Now, the passage that we're going to go over uh, today, really over the next few weeks models an even greater sacrificial and selfless love. We, of course, see the most selfless love in God giving of himself in order to save wicked sinners like you and I and bring them into his family. We see this in chapter 13 where it's a famous passage because that's where Jesus right before, I mean, the night that he is about to be betrayed and the night before he goes to the cross, he spends this evening with his disciples and he washes their feet. And it's a beautiful model of love, not simply an example of how to serve, but the idea of uh, foot washing was something that was reserved really just for slaves. And these were dirty feet walking along dirt tracks for kilometers and kilometers. And so it was usually something that slaves would do. And here the rabbi, uh, the teacher, of the group washes individually each of their feet right before he is then about to be handed over to show exactly how he truly served his people, namely in giving of himself, in sacrificing himself. Now, we're not actually going to talk about the foot washing today. That's just to whet our appetites for the next few weeks. But today we're just going to look at this first verse that introduces the foot washing scene verse 1 of chapter 13, where John gives this summary statement of Jesus' relationship with his disciples through his ministry, and he explains that Jesus loved these disciples. Jesus came into the world. He was about to leave the world to go back to his father. He loved his disciples, having loved his own. He loved them to the end. We see from the first words, that John records here. He wants to draw our attention to the fact that this is right before the Feast of Passover. This is likely the same night. It's probably uh, in the approaching the evening where they would share the Passover meal. And this is the last Passover meal that Jesus would share with his disciples. And in a matter of hours, if you know the story of the Passover, it's, of course, where God saved his people out of Egypt and he told them to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood all over the doorposts of their house and wherever the blood of the lamb was, the destroyer would not destroy the firstborn of that family but would pass over to save God's own people And that would be celebrated year after year. And Jesus was then celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples when he himself is about to become the Passover lamb whose blood is shed to then save his people from the wrath of God and to bring them into the family of God. And as this hour comes for Jesus to finish his purpose in coming to the earth, John wants us to remember the great love That Jesus has for his disciples. So before we look at the foot washing over the next few weeks, let's take today and just consider the deep love of Christ. This love that Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 surpasses all knowledge. It's an incomprehensible love. We will do the best we can to comprehend as much as we can of this love. We're going to do this by looking at three aspects of Christ's love that we get from this verse here three particular aspects of the love of Christ. The first aspect of the love that Jesus has for his people is that it is a particular love. It is a particular love. So John says here, Jesus loved his own. We know that God loves the world, We know that in love, God created all people. God didn't create people because he was needy and desperate for attention. He, out of the overflow of his love, created all people. But there is a particular love that God has for his own elect people. We saw this when we looked at John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd and he comes to his own sheep He comes to call out his own sheep. Jesus is not expecting every single person to come to him. He's very intentional to say, I'm coming for my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. Even if they have ignored it for years and years and decades and decades, eventually my sheep hear my voice because they're mine. I own them. Jesus comes to his own sheep. And why is it that they will hear his voice? Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, when he says, We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, out of love, that is, out of the love of God, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That's a very dense theological verse there, but it's saying before anything was determined, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ. Why were we chosen? Because God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That is to say, God assured his salvation. He would not leave it up to us even if he left it up to us just one percent that one percent of us would reject him every time God assures the salvation of his people and so Jesus as the good shepherd comes to his sheep because they were chosen in him this particular love that God has for his people that we see in Christ coming for his sheep and that we will see when we get to John 17 where Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. And we read that he doesn't pray for the whole world. He's very specific to say, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for my disciples and all who will believe in him. This is a particular love and it is a love that stretches all the way back into eternity when we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world by nothing other than the mercy of God. And just think, think for a moment about this eternal, particular. Love that has been poured out into our hearts. this is not a, a general love, like the kind of love that someone may have once told you that they love you, and you think that 's really special, and then someone brings them a packet of chips and they say, "Oh, I love you, Thanks for bringing me these chips, and you realize, well, okay, i don 't feel so special anymore, or someone who you know throws around compliments and says something really nice to you, and then they say the same thing to someone else, and you know that that person isn't worthy of a compliment, and you realize they 're just throwing around compliments like it's nothing. Now that's a general kind of love. It's still a good thing to do in one sense, but God's love is not a general careless love. He doesn't just throw it around. It's a particular love. It's a very specific kind of love that he has for his own people. Notice that God's love is also not a spontaneous eruption of emotion, that we tend to think of love based upon sort of this Cupid idea of this uncontrollable, spontaneous feeling. You know, the heart wants what the heart wants, and so we get the expression, we fall into love. God doesn't fall into love. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. He is love. It's not an uncontrollable, spontaneous emotion. His love has existed for all time for he is love by his very essence and that love that is shared between Father, Son and Spirit, this beautiful Trinitarian love, that is the love that Christ brings us into as he calls us into himself. He is bringing us into that love that existed before anything was created, that is from everlasting To everlasting so Jesus loves his own in a particular way because they were chosen in him before the foundation of the world and when you truly understand this when you truly understand this particular love you are not driven in any way to pride there can be no arrogance or pride within anyone who understands this love, because you know that this love comes to you by complete undeserved mercy. In fact, Christ's love comes to us when we are in the most unlovable state, when we are enemies of him, and that's when he showers his love upon us. See, a right understanding, if I can just make sure we have a correct understanding of this, of God's particular love based upon his election, it breeds humility rather than pride. In fact, George Whitfield, the great evangelist through the Great Awakening, actually believed that no one could be truly humble unless they understood the doctrine of God's sovereign election. No one could actually be humble unless they understood that. He says, I cannot see, this is George Whitfield. I cannot see how true humbleness of mind can be attained without a knowledge of the doctrine of election, For if we deny election, we must partly at least glory in ourselves. That's a very profound statement. He's saying that if we deny God's sovereign election, then we must partly, at least in some way, believe that there is something within ourselves that is either worthy of that love or there's something within ourselves that has conjured up something to then receive that love. And George Whitfield says, that's arrogance, that's pride. He says, our redemption is so ordered that no flesh should glory in the divine presence. And hence it is that the pride of man opposes this doctrine. He's saying it's really our pride that doesn't like this because it leaves us in this vulnerable place of realizing that we can do nothing to earn God's love and we can do nothing to get us out of this. And pride in man doesn't like that. And George Whitfield is saying that when we come to understand God's sovereign election, it rids us of all of this pride so that we can glory only in the Lord. So God's particular love comes to his particular people because of nothing in particular in and of themselves. It is everything based upon God's sovereign Choice, and we will see later on why we can rest in that love, why that understanding is so necessary for us to have assurance of our salvation. So that's the first love. Notice that it is a particular love. Jesus loves his own who were in the world. Secondly, Jesus' love is a sympathetic love. Now, I would like to redeem the beauty in sympathy because we kind of understand sympathy to be not necessarily a highly desirable thing. In fact, a lot of the time we view sympathy as kind of a negative thing. Like if you're going through a really dark time and someone comes to you, you might have a temptation to say, I don't need your sympathy. I don't need it. You know, it's not a desirable thing. I don't need your sympathy. Sympathy is a beautiful thing. Our idea of sympathy is very underdeveloped and the life and ministry of Christ rightly develops our idea of Sympathy. Sympathy comes from two words, which literally just means with suffering. Sim, the prefix for with, and pathy comes from pathos, where you have suffering. Sympathy is with suffering. And the key to sympathy... Is that it requires an understanding of the person and their circumstances. It doesn't necessarily require you to be in their suffering. That's kind of the difference between empathy, where you somehow go into their suffering. Sympathy is to be with suffering with someone in their suffering, and the key to that is, of course, understanding that person. It's near impossible to sympathize with anyone if you do not understand that person and their circumstances. It's really difficult to be sympathetic. Now, Jesus's love is a sympathetic love because he is with us in our suffering he has shown himself to be with us. And also because he understands us in our suffering, he is able to sustain us. Now, you might be wondering, where am I getting this in this passage? Well, in this verse here, notice that John says Jesus is about to depart out of this world and having loved his own who were in the world. So Jesus came into the world. He's about to depart the world and he's loving those who are in the world. Jesus does not love as someone who remains distant. God doesn't remain distant. God has shown himself to understand us. God has shown his love in that he entered into the world. He didn't remain distant, calling us to something that was unachievable from within ourselves, but rather he entered into the world so he understands what it is like to live in this fallen world and evil world. Jesus understands what it is like to suffer temptation. He understands. He understands what it is like to lose loved ones. He understands what anxiety feels like. The writer of Hebrews says this so well in Hebrews 4.15, where he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. If you don't like the double negatives, let me rephrase it. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Why? Because in every respect he was tempted as we are yet without sin. What a glorious truth this is. Let's just dwell on this for a moment. What a glorious truth this is, that we have a Savior who can sympathize with us because in every respect he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, and he is completely able to uphold us in our suffering. He understands us in our suffering. He is sympathetic because he is with us in our suffering. And there is soul-comforting sympathy to be received in every situation of life. Just think about this, what comfort there is for those of us going through times of great grief, whether it is because we have experienced the death of a loved one or some other separation of a loved one, we think of Jesus who himself lost loved ones. He lived in this world and he lost family members. We think of him weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, weeping so much that the people looked upon him and said, look at how much love this man had for Lazarus. Jesus understands what it is to face grief, for it says in Isaiah 53, he is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. That's the description of our Savior, someone who is well acquainted with grief. And so in our times of grief, we have someone who understands what it is to grieve, what comfort there is for us experiencing anxiety. For us, because of things that lie ahead, uncertainty in the future, whether it's financial uncertainty, family uncertainty, an extremely difficult situation, we think of Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane is experiencing what you could easily call anxiety, not in a sinful way, but in the sense that he is feeling the weight of what lies ahead, so much so that Luke tells us he drips drops of blood, He sweats drops of blood as he is feeling the increasing weight of the cross before him. Jesus understands what it is like. And so when we are in those moments of anxiety, we look to our Savior who had his own moment of soul-crushing agony and he persevered. For those of us who are weighed down by sin, whether it is a temptation to lust whether it is a a temptation to worry unnecessarily, whether it is hatred of other people. We think of Jesus, who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's our comfort. Because that sinless life that Jesus lived is the life that is then given to us as we looked at last week, as we are united with him in that life. And so when we are weighed down by sin, we do not look specifically to our ability to cut sin out, though we should put sin to death. We look to the perfect sinless life of Christ that is our very own in the gospel. There is great comfort to be had in understanding Jesus' love as a sympathetic love. You, you need these passages, for we know that we will go through great loss, great despair. We will go through times of tremendous difficulty in this life. If you have not, just wait, it will come. And the comfort that we have is that Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. This is why Paul could say in Romans 8:35, "What shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's going to separate us from the love of Christ?" And then he lists all of these sufferings. He says, "Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword, all of these sufferings, are they going to separate us from the love of Christ?" He says, "No." because Christ's love is a sympathetic love, that is to say, he is with us in those sufferings. He doesn't disappear when we are facing death, when we're facing persecution, when we're facing tremendous loss. Jesus is no less near us. In fact, he is very near us. He is very present with us, upholding us. And so Paul says, therefore nothing, Neither death, nor life, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a sympathetic love. That is to say, he remains with us in our suffering. And lastly, it is a persistent love. God's love is a particular love. It is a sympathetic love. And finally, it is a persistent love. Notice the last phrase here. Jesus loved them to the end. The end likely means the very end of his life on earth. It's not as if Jesus stops loving like he has a finite amount of love and as in the goal of his earthly ministry. It is focusing us in on the persistence of Christ's love to say that his love endures to the very end through the most humiliating and excruciating circumstances. Now, think, of course, that to persist, to endure through something requires opposition or adversity. So we don't commend someone for persisting through eight hours of lounging on a beach. They don't persist through that. That's very easy to do. We would would commend someone for persisting through eight hours of trudging through desert conditions in the wilderness, without any water, and yet they endure through it, because there are adverse circumstances. A persistent love is a love that endures through adversity. And Jesus' love is a persistent one in that it endures through the greatest of afflictions. His love can never be quelched by difficult circumstances. See, this moment that John is writing this, This moment that we're entering into in John chapter 13, this is the night before Jesus is about to be delivered and crucified and taking the wrath of God upon himself. He is about to suffer the death of someone who is considered cursed by God. And so if there was any moment for Jesus's love to find its end in the sense of its limits, Surely this was the moment. If there was one moment where Christ's love would actually be, uh, where Christ would actually say, you know what, I love you, but not this much. This is too much. Surely it was about, it was the moment that he was about to die, a horrible, horrible death, an excruciating death, an agonizing death. And he was about to do that for a people who at their core are rebellious toward him. Surely that was the moment that Christ's love would find its limit, but yet his love endures to the end. His love endures as he is mocked and beaten by the Roman soldiers. His love endures as he is spat upon, as he is reviled by his very own people. His love endures as we go back to the garden where he is on his face in the dirt, pleading for any other way than the cross, for him to accomplish this act of redemption, and yet he says, not my will, but your will, Father, be done. That is to say, his love endures through the agony of the cross and everything that led up to it. The love of Christ is a steadfast, unfailing love that persists through every obstacle. How comforting that is for us to know in our own adversity, in our own suffering, that we have a love that endures, a love that persists, a love that is inseparable from our very selves because Christ has shown himself to remain with us. Now, the goal of the devil is to, one of the goals at least, is to pervert our understanding of this love. corrupt our understanding of this love. So we either doubt that Christ's love will be present with us through adversity because when we are in difficult circumstances, let's be honest, it doesn't feel like we're loved. So we might have a temptation to doubt God's goodness and to doubt God's love toward us. Or we may believe that his love will persist within us because we are somehow worthy of that love because we've done something in particular to be worthy of that love. Let's just cross off doubting first. At times we, of course, are tempted to believe, I know I've experienced this at times before, that maybe God's love is somehow tainted by a cruel motive. Maybe perhaps his love is no longer with us in our crushing circumstances. Anyone who is able to read The Bible, without a blindfold on, that is clearly, can see that we will face great difficulty in this life. And when we are in those moments of difficulty, it is tempting to believe that God maybe has cruel motives for his adverse circumstances that he has brought us into Or maybe he has taken his love away from us. And for those of us who go through those moments of doubting God's love in those moments, we must come back to the end of Christ's love that John talks about here. Jesus loved his own to the end. That is, he endured the primary goal of the cross. And so if we ever doubt God's love for us, if we are ever in moments where we doubt God's love, and this has been an absolute treasure to me in those moments, if we doubt that, then we must only look to the cross where we see that Christ endured the horrors of the cross. He endured the soul-crushing, debilitating nature of the cross, and he did that while we were enemies of him, so how much more is he going to persist in his love toward us now that he has washed us, now that he has made us clean, now that he has redeemed us as his very own? He will never forsake his own people. Never, ever will he forsake his own people that he has purchased purchased with his blood. So we must take those doubts and we must submit them to the cross where we are reminded that Jesus loves his own to the end, which means he loves them to his goal, which knows no end, which knows no limitation. The other temptation that we may have is to believe that we are somehow worthy of that love. We discussed this last week when looking at the core of the gospel. There is nothing within us that can lay any claim of merit toward God. Nothing at all, simply cold, evil, rebellious hearts in our natural state that are hostile toward a holy God. And if we believe that Christ's love comes to us somehow because we are living a good Christian life, And this is the temptation for many people to believe that Christ's love comes to them because they do Christian things, because they don't swear or they try not to. They don't have sex before marriage. They attend church. They do these good things. They have this base level of Christian morality. And that's why God's love has come to me. But God's love in Christ is not earned in any way. It is gifted toward those who recognize their complete unworthiness of this love. It is a gift to be received by faith. Even the very faith that we have does not come as something that we have mustered up within ourselves, but as Paul says in Ephesians 2, We are saved by grace through faith. And this, that is the grace and faith together, is not a result of our own doing, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, but it is the gift of God. Our very faith is not something that we had naturally within ourselves that we then muster up so that we can look to Christ. Rather, it is a gift that God gives to those whom he has mercifully brought to life to trust in him. And so to believe that we are somehow worthy of God's love because of something within ourselves, is to set yourself up for an impossible and exhausting life. We know this experientially. If you ever had teenage relationships, even as adults, often relationships are formed because of something that we see that is naturally attractive in the other person and vice versa. So maybe it's a physical attraction. Maybe it's because you're funny. And whatever it is, if that relationship has been built off of something that that person has within themselves, if I receive someone's love, because I'm a really funny person, then I better be a comedian for that whole relationship, or I'm not gonna be secure in that love. What a relieving thing it is, when someone's love comes to you because of nothing that you have naturally in and of yourselves, but purely because of that person showering their love upon you. That is a love that you can rest in. Suddenly you rest in that love because you're not trying to earn that love, nor are you trying to do anything to keep that love. You're just resting in that love. Now here, as I finish, is where we bring these three aspects of God's love all together in a nice little bundle here. God's particular love, His sympathetic love, and His persistent love. God's particular love comes to us because of nothing in particular within ourselves. It is a love that stretches all the way back into eternity past and it comes to us because of God's unconditional election. That is to say, because of nothing we have done, but rather because of God's sovereign love and choice. Therefore, we know that his love will persist We know that it's going to persist because it's a particular love that has its roots back in eternity past based upon his sovereign choice rather than our ability or merit. That's why it will persist because it was a particular love that God had before the foundation of the world for his elect people. Not only that, but we know that his love will persist in our weaknesses, in our sufferings, because God has shown himself to be sympathetic in his love. That is to say, he has shown himself to be with us in our sufferings. He has shown himself to be one who will sustain us in our sufferings. That's Paul's logic in Romans 8.32. If you ever want a a verse to be treasured, to hold on to when you are going through great grief, then hold on to Romans 8.32. He who did not withhold his own son but freely gave him up for us. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Do you notice the logic in that? He who did not spare his own son. Paul's saying, I know that God is going to be with me in, our, in my suffering because if there was one moment that God could have reneged on his commitment, it was surely as he was about to give up his son to suffer an excruciating death. But Paul says, but he didn't. He didn't do that. No, he freely gave up his son. So I know he's going to be with me in my suffering. I know that because that was the moment and he didn't. He gave up his son. He's invested in me. He's shown that he is immeasurably invested in me. That's what I hold on to. That's what I will hold on to in my sufferings to know that Christ endured the suffering. And so he is so invested in me that he will remain with me in my own suffering. His love knows no end other than the very end that he has ordained, which is from everlasting to everlasting. This is a love that we can rest in. It is particular in that it is directed particularly to you who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week in Galatians, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me... And gave himself for me. That is to say, it is a particular love. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you who have trusted in him. It is sympathetic. Jesus' love is a love that remains with us and upholds us in our sufferings. His love does not disappear in our sufferings, rather, in our suffering, He is very present, very near. And it is persistent. His love will not fade. His love cannot be quelched. It will endure through the greatest of adversities. Now, as we finally finish, just let me give some applications in how we respond to this so that we don't allow this to remain too abstract. But how do we respond to this love? There are three particular ways. We respond in obedience. We'll see as we go through John 13, 14 and 15. Jesus is very clear to say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That is to say, if my love has been poured out into your heart, which creates a love for me, you're going to obey my commandments. You're going to. Not not because you're trying to earn my love, but because you have my love. And so you're going to walk in obedience. And so we respond in loving obedience to the God who loved us and gave himself for us. And there may be some here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, the act of obedience in response to God's love is, of course, then walking in obedience to his command to believe in him and to be baptized. That's obedience to God's love. When you come to understand that love, you obey and you trust in him and you follow what Jesus has said. So we respond in obedience. Secondly, We respond by resting in that love. We rest in that love. The love of Christ is not a love that is earned or achieved. It is not a love that we attain to. It is a love that comes to us when we are in our most unlovable state. And if the love of Christ came to us while we were unlovable, how much more can we rest in that love Now that we have been washed and cleansed, we're going to sing after we take the Lord's Supper, O love that will not let me go. And George Matheson was a Scottish minister who wrote that. He was practically blind for his whole life and lived a single life. By all accounts, it seems like the one woman that he loved uh, wouldn't marry him because of his condition of blindness, because he would simply be a burden. And he wrote the hymn, O love that will not let me go. And it's a beautiful hymn that begins with him saying, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I rest in that love because that's a love that will not let me go. And so I'm going to rest in that love. That's, That's my home. That's my place of security and comfort. We respond by resting in that love. Finally, thirdly, we respond by drawing near to the throne of grace. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, we have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with us. That is to say, we, we have Jesus as someone who is sympathetic, as someone who will not leave us nor forsake us. No, someone who will be with us in our suffering. He goes on to say, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What a call to approach the holy God. It seems unusual to say you can boldly approach that throne of grace, you sinner. Well, you sinner who have been washed by the blood of Christ, you can boldly come to that throne of grace with joy, boasting in the Lord, boldly come to that throne of grace. Why? So that you can find grace and mercy and help in your time of need. Now this leads very well into the Lord's Supper because one of the ways that we respond to, to Christ's love, one of the ways that we draw near, is in taking the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper—that is, the bread and the cup, symbolic of Christ's body and blood. We take it as we are drawing near to that throne of grace, as we are finding help in our time of need. If there was a uh, time of need, if there was ever a moment for weak, weak. Sinners who have trusted in Jesus Christ to find strength, it is as we come to the Lord's table. It's as we come to take of the body and blood of Christ, because as we take of the bread and the cup, we are reminded that our greatest problem, I mean the greatest problem that we will ever have in this world, has been solved. The greatest problem we will ever have, namely sin before a holy God, it has been solved and solved in a wonderful way by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, by the gospel of our salvation. And so as we draw near to the Lord's table, we are reminded of that. That's where we find our help. That's where we find grace in our time of need because we remember that God didn't withhold his own son. No, he freely gave him up for us. And so, of course, he's going to persevere in his love for us so that he preserves us to the very end.